Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art, and I'm your host. Well, it's a roasting 97 degrees today, and the humidity is high. It's not right. You know, I'm trying to celebrate Christmas in July, and the weather is insisting it to be way too hot for me. So I figure it's a good day to stay inside with a comfort read. And I want to talk to you today a little bit about disastrous Christmases. I'm sure we've all had them, Christmases that have gone awry and it threatens to ruin the holiday spirit. Today's story taps into that a little bit. I'll explain that in a minute. So this month's reading challenge is to read a book that makes you laugh. I've chosen to read Emma by Jane Austen. And so for today's story, I'll be reading you the Christmas party chapters uh, from chapter 13, a bit of chapter 14 and chapter 15. Jane Austen lived from December 16th, 1775 through July 18th, 1817. She was an English author who wrote six novels and several short stories and novellas, uh, books like Pride and Prejudice, uh, Emma, Sense and Sensibility, Persuasion, Manfield Park, and Northanger Abbey. And then it's quite likely you have either read Jane Austen, watched one of her movies. They're the one with the people wearing bonnets going to parties. Uh, I just recently came across this phrase called an Austen bro, which is a man who enjoys Jane Austen. So that's that's a great um, moniker I am now adopting adopting for myself. Jane Austen is not known for her Christmas writings like Dickens is, and it could be because uh, it was during a time when Christmas was not as exuberantly celebrated, uh, shall we say, as, as Dickens encouraged people to do. Christmas did happen, and Austen did celebrate it. And in today's story, uh, these chapters that I'll be reading are set at a Christmas Eve party. So I thought I would read uh, these to you today. So for those of you who have not read the story or watched a movie, here's the story of Emma so far. Emma Woodhouse is young, single, and rich, and she's definitely not in want of a husband. Uh, well, sorry, wrong novel. Her governess has recently been married to a man named Mr. Weston. Emma had had a hand in them getting together, so now she decided that though she would not ever marry herself, she would be a matchmaker for others. And so how well does she do at it? Do you remember that episode of The Office called The Delivery when Pam and Jim had their baby? And Michael Scott decided to try to become a matchmaker in that episode, and he decides to try to match Aaron and Kevin and thought that they would be a good match. <laughs> so yeah, it goes about as well as that. But she will not be deterred, our friend Emma, as she is determined to match up two of her friends, uh, Harriet Smith, a young lady who is an orphan and uh, has just recently become good friends with Emma, and uh, Mr. Elton, their local vicar, a young man, a bachelor, who is on the hunt for a wife. Other characters who appear here are her sister Isabel and her husband uh, John Knightley. Now, uh, the name Knightley might sound familiar. John's brother, George Knightley, is the, um, the wonderful Mr. Knightley that um, provides such a perfect uh, foil for, uh, for Emma throughout the novel. But uh, I 
don't believe he appears in these chapters. Uh, so you'll just have to read the book to hear about all of the, the sparks that uh, may or may not occur between those two. Her father is also in these chapters. He's a bit of a, of a hypochondriac and worries about everything. And of course, Harriet is referred to and Mr. Elton as well. Now, I do skip a, a big chunk of chapter 14, just so you know. Um, most of that involves a conversation between Emma and Mr. Weston about his son, uh, Frank Churchill. And that's a, a plot line that does not come about until later in the novel and doesn't really have a lot to do with the, the Christmas party and the, uh, and the plot that I want to read to you today. So, uh, and so it doesn't have a lot to do with the current plot line. Uh, so if you want to read the full thing, I, I would, of course, highly encourage you to pick up Emma or go watch a movie um, version of it. I have, I have seen several and I have not yet seen a bad Emma adaptation. I, of course, I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen several and, and they're good. I, I would recommend just picking one that looks good to you and watching it. So the scenes I'll read open as Emma is getting ready to attend a Christmas party with uh, a Christmas party with the town at the Westons. And Emma hopes that love will spark between Harriet and Mr. Elton. But since this episode is indeed titled A Disastrous Christmas, well, we'll see what happens. So if you're ready, grab a cup of tea and your bonnet and settle in by the Christmas fire and I'll read you Selections from Emma by Jane Austen. Chapter 13 There could hardly be a happier creature in the world than Mrs. John Knightley in this short visit to Hartfield. Going about every morning among her old acquaintance with her five children and talking over what she had done every evening with her father and sister. She had nothing to do she had nothing to wish otherwise, but that the days did not pass so swiftly. It was a delightful visit, perfect in being much too short. In general, their evenings were less engaged with friends than their mornings. But one complete dinner engagement, and out of the house too, there was no avoiding, though at Christmas. Mr. Weston would take no denial. They must all dine at Randall's one day, even Mr. Woodhouse was persuaded to think it a possible thing in preference to a division of the party. How they were all to be conveyed, he would have made a difficulty if he could, but as his son and daughter's carriage and horses were actually at Hartfield, he was not able to make more than a simple question on that head. It hardly amounted to a doubt, nor did it occupy Emma long to convince him that they might in one of the carriages find room for Harriet also. Harriet, Mr. Elton, and Mr. Knightley, their own especial set, were the only persons invited to meet them. The hours were to be early as well as the numbers few, Mr. Woodhouse's habits and inclination being consulted in everything. The evening before this great event, for it was a very great event that Mr. Woodhouse should dine out, on the 24th of December, had been spent by Harriet at Hartfield. And she had gone home so much indisposed with the cold that, but for her own earnest wish of being nursed by Mrs. Goddard, Emma could not have allowed her to leave the house. Emma called on her the next day and found her doom already signed with regard to Randall's. She was very feverish and had a bad sore throat. Mrs. Goddard was full of care and affection. Mr. Perry was talked of, and Harriet herself was too ill and low to resist the authority which excluded her from this delightful engagement, though she could not speak of her loss without many tears. 
Emma sat with her as long as she could to attend her in Mrs. Goddard's unavoidable absences and raise her spirits by representing how much Mr. Elton's would be depressed when he knew her state and left her at last tolerably comfortable in the sweet dependence of his having a most comfortless visit and of their all missing her very much. She had not advanced many yards from Mrs. Goddard's door when she was met by Mr. Elton himself, evidently coming towards it, and as they walked on slowly together in conversation about the invalid, of whom he, on the rumor of considerable illness, had been going to inquire, that he might carry some report of her to Hartfield, they were overtaken by Mr. John Knightley, returning from the daily visit to Donwell with his two eldest boys, whose healthy, glowing faces showed all the benefit of a country run, and seemed to ensure a quick dispatch of the roast mutton and rice pudding they were hastening home for. They joined company and proceeded together. Emma was just describing the nature of her friend's complaint. A throat very much inflamed, with a great deal of heat about her, a quick, low pulse, etc., and she was sorry to find from Mrs. Goddard that Harriet was liable to very bad sore throats, and had often alarmed her with them. Mr. Elton looked all alarm on the occasion as he exclaimed, A sore throat! I hope not infectious. I hope not of a putrid infectious sort. Has Perry seen her? Indeed, you should take care of yourself as well as your, of your friend. Let me entreat you to run no risks. Why does not Perry see her? Emma, who was not really at all frightened herself, tranquilized this excess of apprehension by assurances of Mrs. Goddard's experience and care. But as there must still remain a degree of uneasiness which she could not wish to reason away, which she would rather feed and assist than not, she added soon afterwards, as of quite another subject, It is so cold, so very cold, and looks and feels so very much like snow, that if it were to any other place or with any other party, I should really try not to go out today, and dissuade my father from venturing. But as he has made up his mind and does not seem to feel the cold himself, I do not like to interfere, as I know it would be so great a disappointment to Mr. and Mrs. Weston. But upon my word, Mr. Elton, in your case, I should certainly excuse myself. You appear to me a little hoarse already, and when you consider what demand of voice and what fatigues tomorrow will bring, I think it would be no more than common prudence to stay at home and take care of yourself tonight. Mr. Elton looked as if he did not very well know what answer to make, which was exactly the case, for though very much gratified by the kind care of such a fair lady, and not liking to resist any advice of hers, he had not really the least inclination to give up the visit. But Emma, too eager and busy in her own previous conceptions and views to hear him impartially, or see him with clear vision, was very well satisfied with his muttering acknowledgment of its being, uh, very cold, certainly very cold, and walked on, rejoicing in having extricated him from Randall's and secured him the power of sending to inquire after Harriet every hour of the evening. You do quite right, said she. We will make your apologies to Mr. and Mrs. Weston. But hardly had she so spoken when she found her brother was civilly offering a seat in his carriage. If the weather were Mr. Elton's only objection, and Mr. Elton actually accepting the offer with much prompt satisfaction, it was a done thing. Mr. Elton was to go, and never had his broad handsome face expressed more pleasure than at this moment. Never had his smile been stronger, nor his eyes more exulting than when he next looked at her. Well, said she to herself, this is most strange. After I had got him off so well to choose to go into company and leave Harriet ill behind, most strange indeed. 
but there is, I believe, in many men, especially single men, such an inclination, such a passion for dining out, a dining engagement is so high in the class of their pleasures, their employments, their dignities, almost their duties, that anything gives way to it. And this must be the case with Mr. Elton, a most valuable, amiable, pleasing young man, undoubtedly, and very much in love with Harriet, but still he cannot refuse an invitation. He must dine out wherever he is asked. What a strange thing love is. He can see ready wit in Harriet, but will not dine alone for her. Soon afterwards, Mr. Elton quitted them, and she could not but do him the justice of feeling that there was a great deal of sentiment in his manner of naming Harriet at parting, and the tone of his voice while assuring her that he should call at Mrs. Goddard's for news of her fair friend the last thing before he prepared for the happiness of meeting her again, when he hoped to be able to give a better report. And he sighed and smiled himself off in a way that left the balance of approbation much in his favor. After a few minutes of entire silence between them, John Knightley began with, I never in my life saw a man more intent on being agreeable than Mr. Elton. It is downright labor to him where ladies are concerned. With men he can be rational and unaffected, but when he has ladies to please, every feature works. Mr. Elton's manners are not perfect, replied Emma, but where there is a wish to please, one ought to overlook, and one does overlook a great deal. Where a man does his best with only moderate powers, we will have the advantage over negligent superiority. There is such perfect good temper and good will in Mr. Elton as one cannot but value. Yes, said Mr. John Knightley, presently, with some slyness. He seems to have a great deal of good will towards you. Me, she replied with a smile of astonishment. Are you imagining me to be Mr. Elton's object? Such an imagination has crossed me, I own, Emma. And if it never occurred to you before, you may as well take it into consideration now. Mr. Elton in love with me. What an idea. I do not say it is so, but you will do well to consider whether it is so or not, and to regulate your behavior accordingly. I think your manners to him encouraging. I speak as a friend, Emma. You had better look about you and ascertain what you do and what you mean to do. I thank you, but I assure you, you are quite mistaken. Mr. Elton and I are very good friends and nothing more and she walked on, amusing herself in the consideration of the blunders which often arise from a partial knowledge of circumstances, of the mistakes which people of high pretensions to judgment are forever falling into, and not very well pleased with her brother for imagining her blind and ignorant, and in want of counsel. He said no more. Mr. Woodhouse had so completely made up his mind to the visit, that in spite of the increasing coldness, he seemed to have no idea of shrinking from it and set forward at last most punctually with his eldest daughter in his own carriage, with less apparent consciousness of the weather than either of the others. Too full of the wonder of his own going and the pleasure it was to afford at Randall's to see that it was cold, and too well wrapped up to feel it. The cold, however, was severe, and by the time the second carriage was in motion, a few flakes of snow were finding their way down, and the sky had the appearance of being so overcharged as to want only a milder air to produce a very white world in a very short time. Emma soon saw that her companion was not in the happiest humor. The preparing and the going abroad in such weather, with the sacrifice of his children after dinner, were evils, were disagreeables at least, which Mr. John Knightley did not by any means like. He anticipated nothing in the visit that could be at all worth the purchase, 
and the whole of their drive to the vicarage was spent by him in expressing his discontent. A man, said he, must have a very good opinion of himself when he asks people to leave their own fireside and encounter such a day as this, for the sake of coming to see him. He must think himself a most agreeable fellow. I cannot do such a thing. It is the greatest absurdity, actually snowing at this moment, the folly of not allowing people to be comfortable at home, and the folly of people's not staying comfortably at home when they can. If we were obliged to go out such an evening as this, by any call of duty or business, what a hardship we should deem it. And here are we, probably with rather thinning clothing than usual, setting forward voluntarily, without excuse, in defiance of the voice of nature, which tells man, in everything given to his view or his feelings, to stay at home himself and keep all under shelter that he can. Here are we setting forward to spend five dull hours in another man's house, with nothing to say or to hear that was not said and heard yesterday, and may not be said and heard again tomorrow. Going in dismal weather, to return probably in worse, four horses and four servants taken out for nothing but to convey five idle, shivering creatures into colder rooms and worse company than they might have had at home. Emma did not find herself equal to give the pleased assent, which no doubt he was in the habit of receiving, to emulate the very true, my love, which must have been usually administered by his travelling companion, but she had resolution enough to refrain from making any answer at all. She could not be complying, she dreaded being quarrelsome, her heroism reached only to silence. She allowed him to talk and arranged the glasses and wrapped herself up without opening her lips. They arrived, the carriage turned, the step was let down, and Mr. Elton, spruce, black, and smiling, was with them instantly. Emma thought with pleasure of some change of subject. Mr. Elton was all obligation and cheerfulness. He was so very cheerful in his civilities, indeed, that she began to think he must have received a different account of Harriet from what had reached her. She had sent while dressing, and the answer had been, much the same, not better. My report from Mrs. Goddard's, said she presently, was not so pleasant as I had hoped. Not better was my answer. His face lengthened immediately, and his voice was the voice of sentiment as he answered, Oh, no, I am grieved to find. I was on the point of telling you that when I called at Mrs. Goddard's door, which I did the very last thing before I returned to dress, I was told that Miss Smith was not better. By no means better, rather worse. Very much grieved and concerned, I had flattered myself that she must be better after such a cordial as I knew had been given her in the morning. Emma smiled and answered, My visit was of use to the nervous part of her complaint, I hope, but not even I can charm away a sore throat. It is a most severe cold indeed. Mr. Perry had been with her, as you probably heard. Yes, I imagine, that is, I did not. He has been used to her in these complaints, and I hope tomorrow morning will bring us both a more comfortable report. But it is impossible not to feel uneasiness, such a sad loss to our party today. Dreadful, exactly so, indeed, yes. She will be missed every moment. This was very proper. The sigh which accompanied it was really estimable, but it should have lasted longer. Emma was rather in dismay when only half a minute afterwards he began to speak of other things, and in a voice of the greatest alacrity and enjoyment. What an excellent device, said he. The use of a sheepskin for carriages. How very comfortable they make it. Impossible to feel cold with such precautions. The contrivances of modern days indeed have rendered a gentleman's carriage perfectly complete. One is so fenced and guarded from the weather 
that not a breath of air can find its way unpermitted. Weather becomes absolutely of no consequence. It is a very cold afternoon, but in this carriage we know nothing of the matter. Ha! Snows a little, I see. Yes, said John Knightley, but I think we shall have a good deal of it. Christmas weather, observed Mr. Elton, quite seasonable. And extremely fortunate we may think ourselves that it did not begin yesterday and prevent this day's party, which it might very possibly have done, for Mr. Woodhouse would hardly have ventured had there been much snow on the ground. But now it is of no consequence. This is quite the season indeed for friendly meetings. At Christmas everybody invites their friends about them, and people think little of even the worst weather. I was snowed up at a friend's house once for a week. Nothing could be pleasanter. I went for only one night, and could not get away till that very day to-night. Mr. John Knightley looked as if he did not comprehend the pleasure, but said only, coolly, I could not wish to be snowed up a week at Randall's. At another time Emma might have been amused, but she was too much astonished now at Mr. Elton's spirits for other feelings. Harriet seemed quite forgotten in the expectation of a pleasant party. We are sure of excellent fires, continued he, and everything in the greatest comfort. Charming people, Mr. and Mrs. Weston. Mrs. Weston, indeed, is much beyond praise, and he is exactly what one values, so hospitable and so fond of society. It will be a small party, but where small parties are select, they are perhaps the most agreeable of any. Mr. Weston's dining room does not accommodate more than ten comfortably, and for my part, I would rather, under such circumstances, fall short by two than exceed by two. I think you will agree with me turning with a soft air to Emma. I think I shall certainly have your approbation, though Mr. Knightley, perhaps, from being used to the large parties of London, may not quite enter into our feelings. I know nothing of the large parties of London, sir. I never dine with anybody. Indeed, in a tone of wonder and pity, I had no idea that the law had been so great a slavery. Well, sir, the time must come when you will be paid for all this, when you will have little labor and great enjoyment. My first enjoyment, replied John Knightley, as they passed through the sweep gate, will be to find myself safe at Hotfield again. Chapter 14. Selections from Chapter 14. Some change of countenance was necessary for each gentleman as they walked into Mrs. Weston's drawing-room. Mr. Elton must compose his joyous looks, and Mr. John Knightley disperse his ill-humor. Mr. Elton must smile less, and Mr. John Knightley more to fit them for the place. Emma only might be as nature prompted, and show herself just as happy as she was. To her it was real enjoyment to be with the Westons. Mr. Weston was a great favorite, and there was not a creature in the world to whom she spoke with such unreserve as to his wife, not anyone to whom she related with such conviction of being listened to and understood, of being always interesting and always intelligible little affairs, arrangements, perplexities, and pleasures of her father and herself. She could tell nothing of Hartfield, in which Mrs. Weston had not a lively concern. In half an hour's uninterrupted communication of all those little matters on which the daily happiness of private life depends was one of the first gratifications of each. This was a pleasure which perhaps the whole day's visit might not afford, which certainly did not belong to the present half-hour. But the very sight of Mrs. Weston, her smile, her touch, her voice, was grateful to Emma, and she determined to think as little as possible of Mr. Elton's oddities, or of anything else unpleasant, and enjoy all that was enjoyable to the utmost. 
the misfortune of Harriet's cold had been pretty well gone through before her arrival. Mr. Woodhouse had been safely seated long enough to give the history of it, besides all the history of his own and Isabella's coming, and of Emma's being to follow, and had indeed just got to the end of his satisfaction that James should come and see his daughter, when the others appeared, and Mrs. Weston, who had been almost wholly engrossed by her attentions to him, was able to turn away and welcome her dear Emma. Emma's project of forgetting Mr. Elton for a while made her rather sorry to find, when they had taken their place, that he was close to her. The difficulty was great of driving his strange insensibility towards Harriet from her mind, while he not only sat at her elbow, but was continually obtruding his happy countenance on her notice, and solicitously addressing her upon every occasion. Instead of forgetting him, his behavior was such that she could not avoid the internal suggestion of, can it really be as my brother imagined? Can it be possible for this man to be beginning to transfer his affections from Harriet to me? Absurd and insufferable! Yet he would be so anxious for her being perfectly warm, would be so interested about her father, and so delighted with Mrs. Weston, and at last would begin admiring her drawings with so much zeal and so little knowledge as seemed terribly like a would-be lover, and made it some effort with her to preserve her good manners. For her own sake she could not be rude, and for Harriet's, in the hope that all would yet turn out right, she was even positively civil, but it was an effort especially as something was going on amongst the others, in the most overpowering period of Mr. Elton's nonsense, which she particularly wished to listen to. She heard enough to know that Mr. Weston was giving some information about his son. She heard the words, My son, and Frank, and My son, repeated several times over, and from a few other half-syllables very much suspected that he was announcing an early visit from his son. But before she could quiet Mr. Elton, the subject was so completely past that any reviving question from her would have been awkward. Chapter 15 After dinner, Mr. Woodhouse was soon ready for his tea, and when he had drank his tea he was quite ready to go home, and it was as much as his three companions could do to entertain away his notice of the lateness of the hour before the other gentlemen appeared. Mr. Weston was chatty and convivial, and no friend to early separations of any sort. But at last the drawing-room party did receive an augmentation. Mr. Elton, in very good spirits, was one of the first to walk in. Mrs. Weston and Emma were sitting together on a sofa. He joined them immediately, and with scarcely an invitation, seated himself between them. Emma, in good spirits, too, from the amusement afforded her by the expectation of Mr. Frank Churchill, was willing to forget his late improprieties, and be as well satisfied with him as before, and on his making Harriet his very first subject, was ready to listen with most friendly smiles. He professed himself extremely anxious about her fair friend, her fair, lovely, amiable friend. Did she know? Had she heard anything about her since their being at Randall's? He felt much anxiety. He must confess that the nature of her complaint alarmed him considerably and in this style he talked on for some time very properly, not much attending to any answer, but altogether sufficiently awake to the terror of a bad sore throat, and Emma was quite in charity with him. But at least there seemed a perverse turn. It seemed all at once as if he were more afraid of its being a bad sore throat on her account than on Harriet's, more anxious that she should escape the infection than that there should be no infection in the complaint. He began with great earnestness to entreat her to refrain from visiting the sick chamber again, 
for the present, to entreat her to promise him not to venture into such hazard till he had seen Mr. Perry and learnt his opinion. And though she tried to laugh it off and bring the subject back to its proper course, there is no putting an end to his extreme solicitude about her. She was vexed. It did appear there was no concealing it, exactly like the pretense of being in love with her instead of Harriet. An inconsistency, if real, the most contemptible and abominable. And she had difficulty in behaving with temper. He turned to Mrs. Weston to implore her assistance. Would not she give him her support? Would not she add her persuasions to his to induce Miss Woodhouse not to go to Mrs. Goddard's till it were certain that Miss Smith's disorder had no infection? He could not be satisfied without a promise. Would not she give him her influence in procuring it? So scrupulous for others, he continued, and yet so careless for herself. She wanted me to nurse my cold by staying at home today and yet will not promise to avoid the danger of catching an ulcerated sore throat herself. Is this fair, Mrs. Weston? Judge between us. Have not I some right to complain? I am sure of your kind support and aid. Emma saw Mrs. Weston's surprise, and felt that it must be great, at an address which, in words and manner, were assuming to himself the right of his first interest in her. And as for herself, she was too much provoked and offended to have the power of directly saying anything to the purpose. She could only give him a look, but it was such a look as she thought must restore him to his senses, and then left the sofa, removing to a seat by her sister and giving her all her attention. She had not time to know how Mr. Elton took the reproof. So rapidly did another subject succeed, for Mr. John Knightley now came into the room from examining the weather and opened on them all with the information of the ground being covered with snow, and of it still snowing fast, with a strong drifting wind, concluding with these words to Mr. Woodhouse, This will prove a spirited beginning of your winter engagement, sir, something new for your coachmen and horses to be making their way through a storm of snow. Poor Mr. Woodhouse was silent from consternation, but everybody was either surprised or not surprised, and had some question to ask, or some comfort to offer. Mrs. Weston and Emma tried earnestly to cheer him and turn his attention from his son-in-law, who was pursuing his triumph rather unfeelingly. "'I admired your resolution very much, sir,' said he, "'in venturing out in such weather, for of course you saw that there would be snow very soon. Everybody must have seen the snow coming on. I admired your spirit, and I dare say we shall get home very well. Another hour or two snow can hardly make the road impossible.' and we are two carriages. If one is blown over in the bleak part of the common field, there will be the other at hand. I dare say we shall be all safe at Hotfield before midnight. Mr. Weston, with triumph of a different sort, was confessing that he had known it to be snowing some time, but had not said a word, lest it should make Mr. Woodhouse uncomfortable and be an excuse for his hurrying away. As to there being any quantity of snow fallen or likely to fall to impede their return, that was a mere joke. He was afraid they would find no difficulty. He wished the road might be impassable, that he might be able to keep them all at Randall's, and with the utmost good will was sure that accommodation might be found for everybody, calling on his wife to agree with him that with a little contrivance everybody might be lodged, which she hardly knew how to do, from the consciousness of there being but two spare rooms in the house. "'What is to be done, my dear Emma? What is to be done?' said Mr. Woodhouse's first exclamation, and all that he could say for some time. 
To her he looked for comfort, and her assurances of safety, her representation of the excellence of the horses, and of James, and of their having so many friends about them, revived him a little. His eldest daughter's alarm was equal to his own. The horror of being blocked up at Randall's while her children were at Hartfield was full in her imagination, and fancying the road to be now just passable for adventurous people, but in a state that admitted no delay, she was eager to have it settled, that her father and Emma should remain at Randall's, while she and her husband set forward instantly through all the possible accumulations of drifted snow that might impede them. "'You had better order the carriage directly, my love,' said she. "'I dare say we shall be able to get along if we set off directly. "'And if we do come to anything very bad, I can get out and walk. "'I am not at all afraid. "'I should not mind walking half the way. "'I could change my shoes, you know, the moment I got home, "'and it is not the sort of thing that gives me cold.' "'Indeed,' replied he. "'Then, my dear Isabella, it is the most extraordinary sort of thing in the world.' for in general everything does give you cold. Walk home. You are prettily shod for walking home, I dare say. It will be bad enough for the horses. Isabella turned to Mrs. Weston for her approbation of the plan. Mrs. Weston could only approve. Isabella then went to Emma, but Emma could not so entirely give up the hope of their being all able to get away. And they were still discussing the point when Mr. Knightley, who had left the room immediately after his brother's first report of the snow, came back again and told them that he had been out of doors to examine and could answer for there not being the smallest difficulty in their getting home, whenever they liked it, either now or an hour hence. He had gone beyond the sweep, some way along the Highbury Road. The snow was nowhere above half an inch deep, in many places hardly enough to whiten the ground. A very few flakes were falling at present, but the clouds were parting, and there was every appearance of it being soon over. He had seen the coachman, and they both agreed with him, and there being nothing to apprehend. To Isabella, the relief of such tidings was very great, and they were scarcely less acceptable to Emma on her father's account, who was immediately set as much at ease on the subject as his nervous constitution allowed. But the alarm that had been raised could not be appeased so as to admit of any comfort for him while he continued at Randall's. He was satisfied of there being no present danger in returning home but no assurances could convince him that it was safe to stay, and while the others were variously urging and recommending, Mr. Knightley and Emma settled it in a few brief sentences thus. Your father will not be easy. Why do not you go? I am ready if the others are. Shall I ring the bell? Yes, do. And the bell was rung, and the carriage is spoken for. A few minutes more, and Emma hoped to see one troublesome companion deposited in his own house, to get sober and cool and the other recover his temper and happiness when this visit of hardship were over. The carriage came, and Mr. Woodhouse, always the first object on such occasions, was carefully attended to his own by Mr. Knightley and Mr. Weston. But not all that either could say could prevent some renewal of alarm at the sight of the snow which had actually fallen, and the discovery of a much darker night than he had been prepared for. He was afraid they should have a very bad drive. He was afraid poor Isabella would not like it and there would be poor Emma in the carriage behind. He did not know what they had best do. They must keep as much together as they could. And James was talked to and given a charge to go very slow and wait for the other carriage. Isabella stepped in after her father. John Knightley, forgetting that he did not belong to their party, stepped in after his wife very naturally, so that Emma found, 
on being escorted and followed into the second carriage by Mr. Elton, that the door was to be lawfully shut on them, and that they were to have a tete-a-tete drive. It would not have been the awkwardness of a moment, it would have been rather a pleasure, previous to the suspicions of this very day, she could have talked to him of Harriet, and the three-quarters of a mile would have seemed but one. But now she would rather it had not happened. She believed he had been drinking too much of Mr. Weston's good wine, and felt sure that he would want to be talking nonsense. To restrain him as much as might be, by her own manners, she was immediately preparing to speak with exquisite calmness and gravity of the weather in the night. But scarcely had she begun, scarcely had they passed the sweep gate and joined the other carriage, than she found her subject cut short, her hand seized, her attention demanded, and Mr. Elton actually making violent love to her, availing himself of the precious opportunity, declaring sentiments which must be already well known, hoping, fearing, adoring, ready to die if she refused him but flattering himself that his ardent attachment and unequaled love and unexampled passion could not fail to have some effect, and in short, very much resolved on being seriously accepted as soon as possible. It really was so, without scruple, without apology, without much apparent diffidence, Mr. Elton, the lover of Harriet, was professing himself her lover. She tried to stop him, but vainly he would go on and say it all. Angry as she was, the thought of the moment made her resolve to restrain herself when she did speak. She felt that half this folly must be drunkenness, and therefore could hope that it might belong only to the passing hour. Accordingly, with a mixture of the serious and the playful, which she hoped would best suit his half-and-half state, she replied, I am very much astonished, Mr. Elton. This to me. You forget yourself. You take me for my friend. Any message to Miss Smith I shall be happy to deliver, but no more of this to me, if you please. Miss Smith? Message to Miss Smith? What could she possibly mean? And he repeated her words with such assurance of accent, such boastful pretense of amazement, that she could not help replying with quickness, Mr. Elton, this is the most extraordinary conduct, and I can account for it only in one way. You are not yourself, or you could not speak either to me, or of Harriet, in such a manner. Command yourself enough to say no more, and I will endeavor to forget it. But Mr. Elton had only drunk wine enough to elevate his spirits, not at all to confuse his intellects. He perfectly knew his own meaning, and having warmly protested against her suspicion as most injurious, and slightly touched upon his respect for Miss Smith as her friend, but acknowledging his wonder that Miss Smith should be mentioned at all, he resumed the subject of his own passion, and was very urgent for a favorable answer. As she thought less of his inebriety, she thought more of his inconsistency and presumption, and with fewer struggles for politeness, replied, It is impossible for me to doubt any longer. You have made yourself too clear. Mr. Elton, my astonishment is much beyond anything I can express. After such behavior as I have witnessed during the last month, to Miss Smith, such attentions as I have been in the daily habit of observing, to be addressing me in this manner, this is an unsteadiness of character, indeed, which I had not supposed possible. Believe me, sir, I am far, very far from gratified in being the object of such professions. Good heavens! cried Mr. Elton. What can be the meaning of this? Miss Smith? I never thought of Miss Smith in the whole course of my existence. Never paid her any attentions, but as your friend. Never cared whether she were dead or alive, but as your friend. If she has fancied otherwise... 
Her own wishes have misled her, and I am very sorry, extremely sorry. But Miss Smith, indeed! Oh, Miss Woodhouse, who can think of Miss Smith when Miss Woodhouse is near? No, upon my honor, there is no unsteadiness of character. I have thought only of you. I protest against having paid the smallest attention to any one else. Everything that I have said or done for many weeks past has been with the sole view of marking my adoration of yourself. You cannot really seriously doubt it. No! In an accent meant to be insinuating, I am sure you have seen and understood me. It would be impossible to say what Emma felt on hearing this, which of all her unpleasant sensations was uppermost. She was too completely overpowered to be immediately able to reply, and two moments of silence being ample encouragement for Mr. Elton's sanguine state of mind, he tried to take her hand again as he joyously exclaimed, Charming Miss Woodhouse, allow me to interpret this interesting silence. It confesses that you have long understood me. No, sir, cried Emma, it confesses no such thing. So far from having long understood you, I have been in a most complete error with respect to your views till this moment. As to myself, I am very sorry that you should have been giving way to any feelings. Nothing could be farther from my wishes. Your attachment to my friend Harriet, your pursuit of her, pursuit, it appeared, gave me great pleasure, and I have been very earnestly wishing you success. But had I supposed that she were not your attraction to Hartfield, I should certainly have thought you judged ill in making your visits so frequent. Am I to believe that you have never sought to recommend yourself particularly to Miss Smith? That you have never thought seriously of her? Never, madam, cried he, affronted in his turn. Never, I assure you, I think seriously of Miss Smith. Miss Smith is a very good sort of girl, and I should be happy to see her respectably settled. I wish her extremely well, and no doubt there are men who might not object to... Everybody has their level. But as for myself, I am not, I think, quite so much at a loss. I need not so totally despair of an equal alliance as to be addressing myself to Miss Smith. No, madam, my visits to Hartfield have been for yourself only, and the encouragement I received. Encouragement? I give you encouragement? Sir, you have been entirely mistaken in supposing it. I have seen you only as the admirer of my friend. In no other light could you have been more to me than a common acquaintance. I am exceedingly sorry, but it is well that the mistake ends where it does. Had the same behavior continued, Miss Smith might have been led into a misconception of your views, not being aware, probably any more than myself, of the very great inequality which you are so sensible of. But as it is, the disappointment is single, and I trust will not be lasting. I have no thoughts of matrimony at present. He was too angry to say another word, her manner too decided to invite supplication, and in this state of swelling resentment and mutually deep mortification, they had to continue together a few minutes longer, for the fears of Mr. Woodhouse had confined them to a foot pace. If there had not been so much anger, there would have been desperate awkwardness but their straightforward emotions left no room for the little zigzags of embarrassment. Without knowing when the carriage turned into Vicarage Lane or when it stopped, they found themselves all at once at the door of his house, and he was out before another syllable passed. Emma then felt it indispensable to wish him a good night. The compliment was just returned, coldly and proudly, and under indescribable irritation of spirits, she was then conveyed to Hartfield. There she was welcomed with the utmost delight by her father, 
who had been trembling for the dangers of a solitary drive from Vicarage Lane. Turning a corner which he could never bear to think of, and in strange hands, a mere common coachman, no James, and there it seemed as if her return only were wanted to make everything go well, for Mr. John Knightley, ashamed of his ill humor, was now all kindness and attention, and so particularly solicitous for the comfort of her father as to seem, if not quite ready to join him in a basin of gruel, perfectly sensible of its being exceedingly wholesome, and the day was concluding in peace and comfort to all their little party, except herself, but her mind had never been in such perturbation, and it needed a very strong effort to appear attentive and cheerful till the usual hour of separating allowed her the relief of quiet reflection. And that was Selections from Jane Austen's Emma. So that was a bit of a disastrous Christmas, right? I I love Emma. I love this book. The whole story, again, is having her making plans and they keep going awry. And this part was one of my favorite parts in the novel. Now, if you've seen movie versions, I think the Gwyneth Paltrow version from mid-90s or so, I can't remember the exact year it came out, 96, I think it was. That scene in the movie just does this scene in the book perfectly. So how about you? Have you ever had a Christmas go awry? I'm sure probably we all have at one time. Uh, I'd love to hear your story of Christmases gone wrong. Now, we ourselves haven't really had any Christmases go wrong as far as I I can remember. Uh, I know one year on Christmas Eve, I had had a a very severe upset stomach and a migraine and, and neck ache. And I ended up, you know, get, getting sick to my stomach throughout the day uh, violently. <laughs> and I'll spare the details. But let's just know I was keenly aware that I was spoiling everyone's Christmas. Grace wasn't born yet. And my boys were still pretty young. And I just felt so bad. In the end, I ended up at the hospital that night on Christmas Eve being rehydrated through IV and, and given some pain meds to help with the, with the migraine. The next day I felt a lot better, but you know, by then all of our Christmas traditions had been kind of put on hold or, or we couldn't deal with it and, and we had to put them off. So Christmas that year was, didn't really feel very Christmassy and it ranks as one of my least favorite Christmases. And of course, you know, it's not like I did it on purpose or anything, but, uh, it, it's just, it is what it is. But I, I do want to, you know, just comment that. You know, as much as we didn't want to be there at the hospital on Christmas Eve, I can imagine that many of the doctors and nurses that were there as well would have rather been at home with their families. So I just want to take a moment to thank all of you listening who might be a doctor or a nurse or some kind of first responder who has to work those shifts on the holidays where that enable it so that we are able to be at home uh, safe with our families. And when emergencies arise, you're there and ready, even on a holiday as wonderful as Christmas. And that, that's a sacrifice. That takes sacrifice. And I am very grateful to those of you who do that. Um, so thank you. I hope that you are able to spend Christmas with your family. If not, just know I appreciate what you do. If you have a story that's about a disastrous Christmas, reach out to me on my social medias. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I'm on all of them. And also, I have an email. It's cozychristmaspodcast at gmail.com. 
and I'd love to hear your, your story of a disastrous Christmas. Well, that will do it for today's episode. Thank you, as always, for joining me, and thank you for your support. Please make sure you like and share and subscribe, leave a review. Those are things that really help to spread the word about the podcast. If you'd like to support us financially, there are some merch links in the show notes, and you could also make a donation on ko-fi.com, and I'll send you a Christmas card and a bookmark or sticker, or both. Depends on how generous I'm feeling. All right. So until next time, remember to be kind to each other and do good, and let us honor Christmas in our hearts and try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas.